but if you will, open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. Um, I, I want to share something with you all. Uh, um, the youth probably won't enjoy this that much, but uh, hopefully uh, the older group will. Um, as, as husbands and wives, it's, it's always good to show your affection to your husband or to your wife. And youth, you need to remember that when you do get married, okay? It's always good uh, to show your affection. And uh, some of y'all may, most of y'all may have known, but uh, it was Heidi's birthday this month, which means from the start of August 1st till the end of uh, August 31st and a little bit into September is birthday month. Um, at our house, and so uh, th- there has to be a lot of shows of affection, and um, I don't know if y'all have Facebook or anything, but funny story, I, I accidentally wrapped Heidi's present wrong. Um, I-, I got several boxes in, and one was actually from her school that she's graduating from, and it had a bunch of stuff in it that was just, you know, little gimmick stuff with big banners and, you know, WGU, and I, accident- I accidentally wrapped that instead of her real gift and gave it to her, so it, it was pretty funny when we were having a car ride. Um, but uh, every once in a while, um, I, I think in men, uh, we, we have a romantic streak in us, don't we? I mean, every once in a while, you get, you, uh, hopefully you do. I mean, you, you, you just get an itch and, and you got you to, gotta, you know, write a poem or write something that, uh, that just expresses your love uh, for your wife. And so I asked Heidi if I could share this with you all tonight, and, and I just want to read this. I wrote this poem for her on her birthday. Uh, And this is what it says. It says, The love of my life. What can I say of the love of my life? Or what can I compare her to? Her gaze is as the morning light to a new day for my soul. The smell of her hair as it brushes against my cheek illuminates my senses with rapturous joy. The touch of her hand is more powerful than an army flooding the gates of a fortress city. The kiss of her lips is as smooth as the honey dripping from a comb. And oh, for a thousand words to describe the love of my beloved. It would not do justice to the cascading tenderness she displays every morning to me. Love your greatest admirer. And so I wrote that to Heidi. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Heidi didn't think it was that good. She didn't give me a round of applause. But she said, why did you wrap my present wrong? That's a... um, but think, think about this with me, okay? Think about this with me. I, I, I poured my heart into that. I mean, it may not have been any good, but I mean, you can tell. I poured my heart into that with the express intent and purpose that I wanted to let my wife know how much I loved her on, on her birthday, right? Now, now, Heidi, I'm just kidding. Heidi enjoyed it. Heidi, Heidi uh, she loved it, and she was gracious enough to let me share that with you. But what if... What if when Heidi had read this card, if she would have rolled down the window as we were driving down, heading to church, and chucked that card out the window? What if that would have been her response? What if that would have been what she would have done? What do you think my reaction would have been? How do you think I would have felt if the love that I had displayed to her, if the emotions and the care and the time and the effort that I took and the writing and the rewriting and just trying to fit the right words to describe my love for her, what if she'd have just discarded it as if it was nothing? In today's message in Isaiah chapter 5, we're going to look at the nation of Israel 
And God's going to give them a poem. God's going to write them a love song to describe to them about how much He loved them. And although this love song was wrote to the children of Israel and to the nation of Israel, especially Judah, it's wrote for us, is it not? These words still ring true today, I believe. And though this was wrote to a particular people, and you may not be those particular people, this is wrote for you. When you open the Scriptures and you read this love song, God is pouring out. He is showing you how tender His love and care is for His people. And as I look at the landscape of our churches in America, I feel like a lot of times, a lot of times what we do is we roll down the window and we just chuck the message out. But let me get a little bit more specific. When I look at our church, when I look at Hillcrest Baptist Church, when I remember the church that we have been, and I know the church that God wants us to be, and I consider about where we are in this very moment, I wonder what we would do if God wrote us a love song. I wonder what our response would be. So let's, uh, let's read these first few verses here. I'm going to read here to verse uh, 4, and then let's go into a word in prayer. Verse 1 says this, it says, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 says, Now will I sing unto my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. He fenced it in, he gathered out the stones thereof, he planted it with the choicest of vines, he built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a wine press therein, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes." And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and the men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. What could I have done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, as we come to this message, Lord, and God is... I have been praying over this message, Lord, and seeking Your will and Your way for Your people, God. And uh, Lord, this is not an easy message to preach, Lord. God, it's not an easy one to preach for this church. God, it ought to break our hearts when we have to start asking ourselves the question, what are we doing with the love song that You wrote for us? God, it ought ought to start concerning us when when we become more worried about the politics that are going on in the church or the issues or the drama that's playing out in the church or or when are we going to get a man standing behind the pulpit and God, all along, you are screaming out every day, pouring out your mercies, pouring out your love songs to us every morning as as we awaken, Lord. God, it ought to break our hearts when we consider how we've repaid and returned that affection. So God, I pray today, Lord, we don't harden ourselves to the message you have for us, for it is a hard message. God, I pray we don't point fingers at others, Lord, and say it's their fault or it's his fault or her fault. But God, I pray we consider our own selves. God, what have we done with the love song you have wrote specifically to each and every one of us? And then as we look at our body here, Lord, at Hillcrest Baptist Church, We consider where we came from. 
When we look at the course we've set ahead of us, God, is it one that you would have us to walk? And lastly, Lord, I pray, Lord, we just have a moment of praise for you. God, I pray by the end of this, Lord, you've so touched our hearts, God, that we will stream this altar and praise you as a body of believers. And in Jesus' blessed name I pray, amen. Isaiah, as he comes here, Isaiah has a central theme that runs throughout all 66 of his books, or chapters, I mean. All 66 of his chapters, there's a central theme, and really you pick up on it in Isaiah chapter 6, and you've all heard the expression of the seraphims who are flying around saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But Isaiah has a specific way that he refers to God. He calls Him the Holy One of Israel. In fact, uh, flip back to chapter 1 with me real quick. Chapter 1, I, I want you to see this. Uh, chapter 1, uh, Isaiah starts off, it says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Look at verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his owner, and the donkey knows his master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not consider. Oh, what a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord their God and provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger because they have all gone backward. When we open to Isaiah's message and we look at it, uh, he says, I want to call heaven and earth to witness what I'm about to say. In the Jewish culture, in the Jewish mindset, the heavens and the earth were, had been the eternal witnesses. How does Genesis chapter 1, 1 open? It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So uh, from the Jewish mindset, the heavens and the earth preceded the very beginning of God's creation. They had witnessed throughout the ages, throughout the times. They had saw mankind as God created him. They had seen the Garden of Eden that God placed him into. They watched as Adam and Eve rebelliously sinned and turned their back on God. And they watched as God had, had, had to excommunicate his people out of his presence. But then they'd also watched how God had worked all the way throughout history and had gathered together these people of Israel who were His chosen elect people, the ones that He would bring the Messiah to the entire world. They had been the witness. They had watched it from the very beginning. And they will be there to the very end. He calls heaven and earth, and then what, what does he accuse Israel of? He says, man, he says the donkeys, they know their owners. The ox are smart enough that when, I, when his owner brings the, the feeding trough, the ox will come to its owner. These things understand, but my people don't understand. They don't have a mind that seeks me, and they have provoked the Holy One of Israel to anger. They have provoked Him to anger is what Isaiah is charging the people with. When you think about that idea of the Holy One of Israel, I think it's a beautiful picture of what God uh, truly is. You think about the holiness of God. And as we see in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, the seraphims who, who cover their face for God's holiness and cover their feet for God's holiness and yell one to another, Holy, Holy, Holy. And, and we think about the Holy One is the one that needs no one. 
That because He is holy, He is self-sufficient, He is all-powerful, He is all-knowing. He did not need to create, but He chose to create. He did not need to love, but He chose to love. He is the one in who all things have their being, their movement, and who all things will one day eventually answer to. He is the Holy One. He is the other. There is no words that are humanly capable to describe exactly who God is. Outside of He is the Holy One, He is separate from you. But that God, that God who is in eternity past and in eternity future and in the present as of right now, that God who is so far disconnected from you makes a personal connection here because He is the Holy One of who? Of Israel. Of Israel. Of mankind. Of a people. You think about the way God described Israel. If you go to Deuteronomy, God describes Israel this. He said, I found you a a, a wandering Armenian. You were a nobody. You were a people that nobody wanted. And I chose you out of all the nations, out of all the people in this world, I chose you to love you for you to be my people. So you combine this idea, this Holy One of Israel shows us a God that is eternally out of grasp, but not because of us, but because of who He is. He has now made a connection with mankind and is working out a purpose for the entire world through these people. So when we come to Isaiah chapter 5, we need to understand where the children of Israel were. I believe in Isaiah chapter 5, Uzziah, their king, still reigns on the throne. I believe he has not died yet. When Uzziah reigned on the throne, you can go read this on your own uh, in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. It tells us that Israel experienced prosperity probably like they have not experienced since the days of Solomon. I mean, anything Uzziah put his mind to because he followed the Lord, because he devoted himself to the Lord. It tells you, man, this guy was a beast. He conquered the Philistines. He conquered everybody. I mean, everybody knew Uzziah. Everybody feared Israel when Uzziah sat on the throne. But as so many times and so too often uh, as God raises that man up and as we see God bring that man to a point uh, of fame and glory and magnitude, he allowed that to pride and harden his heart. And Uzziah steps into the, uh, steps into the temple and tries to offer incense to the Lord that only the priest could do. And God strikes him with leprosy. And for the rest of his reign, he's a leper. I believe this is the context by which Isaiah is speaking here when we see this love song. And let's dive into it. Let's see what this says here. Look, verse verse 1 says, uh, Now I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. So think about this. When, when this guy's telling us about this vineyard and he's showing us the relationship between this man and his vineyard, it says that he chose a very fruitful hill. That, that means he picked out a ground that he knew would be fruitful for, for uh, growing vines. He knew the, the soil was good for growing vines. He knew this would be a place that if he planted his vine, if he planted his garden here, that it would produce fruit. Look, verse 2 says, And he fenced it in and gathered out stones thereof. 
So, so he put a hedge up. We're going to see this in a little bit. First thing he did is he put a hedge up around it. That would have been uh, probably some kind of, uh, of plant that had thorns or, or briars or thistles. And this was to keep uh, the animals out, the foxes and the animals that would want to come in and eat the grapes that were growing on this, uh, this hedge would keep them out. Not only that, he built a wall. It says he took the stones out of the ground here. He removed anything out of their way that would hinder them from being fruitful, that would hinder its vine from being fruitful and then he set up a, a walled stone we'll, uh, uh, and that was to keep uh, enemies out if an army wanted to come in and, and capture this land or, or his neighbor envied this land he, he puts this stone wall up of protection for them not only that it says that I built a tower in the midst of it uh, if you were here for uh, where have all my watchmen gone, when the very first message I preached of, this tower would have been in the watchtower that the watchmen would have sat on. And it was his job that as he sat on uh, his watchtower and watched over this vineyard, he could see all the way around in every direction if there was an enemy, if there was a, uh, a danger that was coming, anything that would hurt or attack his garden, he could see it. And he stationed himself there on this watchtower. To watch over his garden. Not only that, it says that there was a wine press therein. So, so this fruit could be taken from and, and turned into uh, the, what, the, the wine that it would be made for. And it says he looked that it should bring forth grapes. Makes sense, don't it? I mean, do, does anybody here plant a garden? Do you till the ground? Do you remove the rocks? Do you take the weeds out? Do you plant the seed, water it, watch over it, and then not expect it to bring grapes? I mean, common sense, right? Common sense. This man's done everything that he could do. In fact, he even asked the question in verse 3, Now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, you judge, you answer this question for me. What could I have done more? What else could I have done? For my vineyard. Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. That idea of wild grapes means sour. Sour grapes. Y'all ever got those little bitty tiny grapes on there and you pop them in your mouth and you're like, man, that wasn't as good as that big juicy one that I just grabbed. That was nasty. That was nasty. Uh, I, when I, I told a story one time when I was younger, I, I love chocolate. Well, I still love chocolate chip cookies. But when I was younger, I, I love chocolate chip cookies. And, and mom would always make sure during summer break there were chocolate chip cookies in, in, the, in the refrigerator there. And I would make me some chocolate chip cookies and I would eat those cookies. And then I would just take one big glass of milk and I'd drink the whole thing from top to bottom. Eat the cookies first. There's a process here. Eat the cookies first, get thirsty, and then gulp down this whole glass of milk. One time I went in there, I made these cookies, I pulled them out, grabbed the milk container, opened the milk container, poured it up, full glass, ate all the cookies, took a big old chug of that milk, and man, it was nasty. It was sour. I spit that stuff out. It was disgusting. It was disgusting. Mom came home and said, Mom, why you got sour milk in there? She said, I ain't got sour milk in there. What are you talking about? I don't even have milk in there. And I said, yes, you do. It was sour. It was nasty. I tried it. And she went, opened the thing. It was buttermilk. But that's what God's saying here. God's saying, hey, I've I, I planted this vineyard. I, I've expected a good, plump harvest. I've expected grapes that were nice and juicy. I mean, it was the best vine. It was the best land. I've done everything that I could. I've done everything that I could. And when I come to see my vine, when I came to see my vineyard, all that's on there are these little nasty, sour 
grapes that are good for nothing. Look at verse 5. God says, And now, go, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof. Remember what the hedge was? Kept the animals out, right? You take away the briars, the thorns, and the thistles that keep the foxes out. Now when you take away the hedge, all you have is a stone wall. Those foxes can hop right over that stone wall. Eat up all your grapes. I'm going to take the hedge away. Then what's he say? He says, I'll break down the wall thereof. Now any invading army, any person who wants to just walk through my vineyard, pluck the grapes off of my, my vines, eh, it's free rain. It's wide open. And it shall be trodden down underfoot. Verse 6 says, And I will lay it waste. I shall, uh, it shall not be pruned. I won't even take the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the weeds away. It will not be digged. It won't be cultivated. Uh, but there shall come briars and thorns, and I will also command the clouds that not even rain will fall on it. I mean, this is, this is some serious business, don't you think? This man really cared about this vine. And he expected this vine to bring forth solid, good grapes. Amen? I mean, you see this relationship they have. And so now verse 7, God reveals the big picture. Look at it. It says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant vine. And he looked for judgment, but behold oppression, for righteousness, but behold a cry. As Isaiah is speaking these words, Remember, Uzziah is on the throne. Godly king, right? Godly king. Uzziah is reigning, sitting on the throne. Uzziah is speaking this message to the people of Judah, to the people uh, of Jerusalem, and he's saying, look, you have been planted, you've been given the best of the best, you see all this prosperity around you, look at all the houses God has given you, look at the king that God has given you, has he not done everything that he can, and yet... When he looks at your lives, when he looks at the fruit that you're bringing, you bring nothing to him but sour grapes. Nothing to him but sour grapes. Look what he says. He says, uh, for he looked for judgment, but behold oppression. That means the leaders, the ones who knew that the, that the issues needed to be dealt with, that the problems that were going on needed to be dealt with, those who had the power who, who could deal with these issues and could deal with the problems that were going on in their society, they not only were not dealing with them, but they were oppressing the people that they were supposed to be helping. Not only that, he says, I look for righteousness. What? Hold on a second. That's a New Testament word, isn't it? Righteousness, right? Aren't we supposed to be righteous before God? Isn't the, the blood of Christ supposed to reign over us and, and after He has forgiven us and justified us with God, now when God looks on our life, He looks at us in righteous standing? Israel of the Old Testament was supposed to be the righteous people. They were supposed to be planted there by God. And when, and when other nations looked at them, they were to see their righteousness and they were to say, my God isn't like your God. My people aren't like your people. There's something different about you. There's something special about you. And but you know what? It's so special that I'm willing to leave my life and I want to be a part of what's going on in your life. That's what Israel was supposed to be in the Old Testament. But look what it says. It says, God said, I look for righteousness. I look for you to be a righteous people. 
I look for you to be a people that shed the light of God in the world. I look for you to be a people that love coming and bringing your sacrifices before me. I look for you to be a people that did your best to live by the law. And even when you fell short, you knew the way to come and get forgiven. Those are the, that's the people I expected you to be. But what did he get in return? He says, behold, I have a cry. People are crying out against me, crying out against you, crying out against the oppression that you brought because you have the truth. It's in your grasp. And I've done everything for you, for you to bring forth that truth. But yet when people see you, they're crying out against the testimony that you're giving them. Those are dangerous words. Those are hurtful words. I don't know about you. When I look at our church, I'm not talking about the church in America. I'm talking about us here, Hillcrest Baptist Church. And I'm not up here pointing the finger at any specific person. I'm not up here to point the finger at anybody except for Jared Stiles. And hopefully you see the message and God points the finger at you too. When we, when we look at ourselves, when we look at our condition, when we look at our state, has God not cleared the way for us? Has God not done everything He can for us? Did He not plant us on a fruitful hill? Amen. I mean, we're hill crest, right? I mean, it's in our name. Has God not planted us here on a fruitful hill that has produced fruit for many, many years? Amen. And has He not removed every single obstacle that has been in our way? Has He not set up hedges around us when little pesky uh, enemies wanted to come in and destroy us from the inside? Maybe even us on the inside. Has He not set up hedges that would poke them and stick them and keep them on the outside? Has He not built walls around us that has grown us and, and has given us protection, not just from the pesky animals, but even from the government that might want to silence us and censure us? Has He not planted Himself right here each every Sunday? Has He not been the watchman for your soul? Has He not been the watchman for my soul? Has He not sat here and gazed over our congregation in each and every single direction and saw the enemy coming? And for many, many years, I would say when He looked at His vineyard, it brought forth good fruit. But when He looks at His vineyard this year, I'm afraid we're producing sour grapes. I'm afraid we've become a people producing sour grapes. Before we move on real quick, and I, and I know I don't have a lot of time, but the very next king after Uzziah was a man named Jotham. If you know your history of Israel, he was a good king. He was a good king. But 2 Chronicles 27 tells us something specific about Jotham. It says that he loved the Lord and he served the Lord, but he did not go to the house of the Lord. Think about that. He loved the Lord, served the Lord, but he didn't go to the house of the Lord. You'd say, why? How does that make sense? Well, think about it. Who was his daddy? Uzziah, right? What happened to Uzziah? He went to the house of the Lord and got leprosy. So Jotham says, you know what I'm going to do? I, I still believe in this God. I still believe uh, I, I will love the Lord. I'll serve the Lord. But man, if daddy got leprosy, I'm not going into that house. I, I'm going to serve God. And you know what it says about the people? You know what it says about the people under jo Jotham's reign? It says that they began to be corrupt. 
they began to be corrupt. Now, track with me here, okay? Track with me. I, I believe we had our Uzziah time. I believe God planted us here, Fertile Hill, did all those things, brought us up, strengthened us, made us into a mighty voice, a mighty strong tower. May, I, I mean, just blessed us all over the place. But I believe also as a congregation, and I'm not talking about a single person, I'm not talking about one man or one woman, but as a congregation, we had a moment that we looked at ourselves, we say we have a $1.6 million budget, we have a thousand people showing up every Sunday morning. You know what? This can't fall apart. This can't be destroyed. I mean, there, it doesn't, this is just a perfect machine that just keeps going around and around and around. And we allow pride to slip into our hearts. And I believe that allowed us to be infected as a, as, a, as a congregation. And we started leveling off. Well, then Uzziah dies, Jotham comes, and the next generation says, you know what? It worked for Daddy. It'll work for me too. Daddy had leprosy. He didn't go to the church of God. I, I, can, I can love God. I can praise God. And I can, uh, I, can get my, I can get my CDs and DVDs. And I can watch it online. And I can just stay home and be comfortable. I can love God. I can still be a good Christian, be a good old boy, be a good old girl. But I can just be comfortable with where I'm at. Let's look at what happens here. I want to show you real quick, verses 8 through the rest of the chapter, we have six woes. We have six judgments that God brings on the people. And we're going to go through these, we're going to blow through these, and then we're going to look at one last king that shows up, and then we're going to go into invitation, okay? Verse 8, look at this, first woe. Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no more place, that they be placed alone in the midst of the earth. And my ears, said the Lord of hosts, of a truth, many houses shall be laid desolate, even great and fair without in, without an inhabitant. Yea, ten acres of a vineyard shall yield one bath, and the seed of an omer shall yield an ephod. Think about this for a second. He's talking about these people. They wanted to increase their wealth so much that they were the only ones. They looked around. There was nobody else. It was just them. That's who they, these people wanted to be. And, and, and I want you to remember, uh, when we were a small congregation, before I even came here, 90 people showing up, a little bitty area, didn't even own the rest of the land, about to go under. And God moved on that place and increased us. And increased us. Now we have 3,000 on our membership, 3,000 on our rolls. And when's the last time we've increased? When's the last time we've built something? When's the last time we can say, man, God has moved, God has blessed us, and God is growing us? Could it be that we got so big that we joined ourselves house to house, grew so much that in our hearts we said, we're the only ones that are doing this. We're the only ones that are getting this job done. And God said, I'll bring desolation. You think that that crowd won't go away from you? Watch them. Look at the next one. Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, that they continue until night, till wine inflame them, and the harp, and the vial, and the temperate, and the pipe, and the wine. And there, there's their feast, and they regard not the work of the Lord, neither consider the operation of His hands. Verse 13, Therefore my people have gone into captivity, because they have no knowledge. And their honorable men are famished, and their multitude are dried up and thirsty. Obviously here this is talking about a big old party that goes on, which probably goes on on many of our members' lives on a daily basis. But 
as a whole, as a body, I would say most of us probably have a strong stance against alcohol. But think about this. What are the things that we give ourselves to? Man, we're playing people, are we not? We're playing people. We'll make time for little Johnny and little Susie's and, and this person's ball games and, and all this. We'll, we'll make time for when it's our boss's Christmas party and we'll make time when it's birthday party. We'll have birthdays for our whole month. We'll, have, we'll, we'll do whatever it takes to have a good time. What does God say that leads to? That says our people have no knowledge. My people don't even see the judgment that's coming on them because they're too busy having a good time. They're too busy living it up. Verse, uh, verse 18 is the next one. Look at this. Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords and sin as it were a cart rope, uh, that they say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come that we may know it. These are the people that show up every Sunday. They've been good, faithful church attenders. They've been good, faithful church, uh, but they drag their sin in with them every Sunday morning. Got it on a big old cart. Everybody knows it. They're proud about it. They're loud about it. And they're saying, they're daring God to bring judgment. Hey, we want to see it. If God is really who He says He is, if God can really do what He says He can do, we want to see it. Show me. Show me. I'd say we got some attitudes like that here tonight. Verse 20, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Verse 21, Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Verse 22, Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for the reward and take away the righteous uh, the righteousness of the righteous from him. Verse 24, Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble, and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be rottenness, and their blossoms shall grow as dust, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. You say, hold on a second, Jared. Are you saying that we despise God's word? Are you, just, are, 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 are you genuinely up there telling us from the pulpit that we have become a people that no longer want to listen to what God has to say? And I'm telling you, yes. I'm telling you, yes. I'm telling you that we have become so vain. We have become so prideful. We have come to the point that we have become so big that we think to ourselves that he's never going to bring this to an end. Think about this. This is the children of Israel. This is His own people. This is the chosen elect of the Old Testament. And God is saying that they have brought themselves, they become so prideful that even though they come in and they worship Him at the temple, even though they bring their sacrifices, even though they observe everything in the law, they have all the feasts, they go through all the motions, that they no longer have the intent in and of their heart to carry out what God's Word actually says and does. I'm afraid we've become that kind of people in our character. It's just become a process to us. It's just become a process. We say that we love God's Word. We say that we'll carry it out. We'll say that we do it. But then when we go home on Monday, when we go home after church service, we bow down before our false idols that we got all around us. 
We live up our lives while people all around us dying on the way to hell, crying out against us because we haven't gave them the, te- the witness and the testimony that we're supposed to be to them. What's going to happen? What, what does this all amount to? Look, verses 25 through 30 is God's judgment. And I'm not going to read all this. I don't have time to read all this. But it's God's judgment, verses 25 through 30. But I want you to look at verse 30. Verse 30 says this. It says, In that day they shall war against them. He's talking about the enemy. He's talking about when God removes the hedge, when God takes away His wall, when God takes away all of His protection and He allows the enemy to come in and bring, uh, bring Israel uh, to the ground, destroy them as a nation. It says, verse 30, And in that day they shall roar against them like lions roaring in the sea. And if one person, if you were to look into the land, behold, darkness and sorrow and light is darkened in the heavens thereof. What God is saying is when I bring judgment on my people, and 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 says that judgment starts in the house of God. It starts with me and you. And if God was willing to bring Israel to the point that they would no longer be a nation and He would send them into captivity in 586 B.C., if God was willing to do that to His people back then, can I promise you, brother and sister, if we don't humble ourselves, if we don't repent, if we don't start seeking Him, He will do it again. He will knock down every single pillar in this building. He will make Hillcrest a memory. He will. But there's hope. I love this. Look, chapter 6, verse 1. Look at how it starts. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now remember how verse 30 said, If you look towards the earth, if your hope is towards the earth, if your hope is towards men, if your hope is in the next pastor that's going to stand behind this pulpit, if that's where your hope is, there's darkness. Darkness. You got nothing to hope in. But where's verse 6 say? Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. I saw Him high and lifted up. And look, He sat upon His throne and His train filled the temple. You know how it goes on. Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah, woe is me because I'm unclean. I mean, can you think about this moment? When we look on earth, holiness sticks out because everything else around it is wicked. Think about that. If somebody's living a holy life, if somebody's really on fire for God, it sticks out like a sore thumb because most of the time, everything else around it is wicked. Everything else around it is dark. Isaiah has the same exact thing flipped on its head here. Isaiah gets to see this vision of God sitting on his throne. Everything else around God is holy, holy, holy. These seraphims are calling out one to another. And the only thing in the presence of God that is unholy is Isaiah. You don't think he stuck out like a sore thumb? You don't think these seraphims who were protecting the glory of God didn't notice Isaiah instantly? You know what seraphim means? It means to burn. To burn. You don't think that they would have, in a drop of a hat, consumed Isaiah because of his wickedness? But Isaiah cries out, he says, Woe is me. And what happens? A seraphim comes, takes an altar off, cleanses him of his sins, puts him in a proper relationship with God. What I'm here to tell you tonight, church, and what I want to bring you to 
is I believe we've grown to such a point. I believe we've had, we, God has blessed us to such an extent. We had our day of Uzziah where this place just exploded. And every single Sunday, just soul after soul, joining the church, getting saved. Just, I mean, miraculous things happening that only the hand of God could do. We had our day of Jotham and probably are still in that day where we said, man, that was a great time. Those were great days. But you know what? I'm not going to have that same commitment. I'm not going to go that far. I still want to serve the Lord, but I don't want to serve the Lord like they serve the Lord. I want to do it my way. The very next king that sat on Israel's throne was a man named Ahaz. And they said he was desperately wicked. Desperately wicked. You know what Ahaz did? He sold out to the enemy. He closed the doors to the temple. He destroyed temple worship all through Israel. And he led the people into false idolatrous worship. Can I tell you, when we have a generation that served to God and God grew it and God blessed it, and now we have a generation that said, you know what, we want to hang on to their coattails, but we don't want to really commit like they committed, then it will breed a generation that says, we don't even want God in our midst anymore. And when that generation comes, I can promise you, God will bring this place to the ground. He will bring it to the ground. So I... As we go into this time of invitation, here's what I have for you. And this is, a, this is going to be a different invitation. I can promise you. I asked you all this morning, those of you that were here this morning, I hope you did your homework and I hope you brought a symbol of what you put your security in. I hope you did. If you weren't here this morning and you say, Brother Jared, I have no clue what you're talking about, it's okay. Okay, no one's going to throw stones at you. If they do, I'll throw a stone back at them. Okay? Uh, but... Here's what I wanted you to do. I wanted you to go home and say, what is it that I, that I hold on to, that I rely on to? And, and to be honest with yourselves, we all would say, well, I rely on God. I rely on God's word. Uh, but as we saw in the children of Israel's life, and I believe as God has made very clear and evident in our church's life, just because we say that doesn't mean that we actually do it. We all hold on to something in this world that we just lean on as a crutch. I want to share mine with you. <clears throat> this picture right here has been by my bedside since I was a teenager. It, it's been by my bedside. This is the farthest back that I know of my family. Now, my family goes obviously farther back than these two. These weren't around during Adam and Eve. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> these two are my great-grandparents. They're, they're the farthest back that I ever actually met, ever actually got to see. And this has sat by my bedside for years, for years. And every time I look at it, it just reminds me of my family. My family is my crutch. I rely on my family. Money's never been a big thing with my family. Money's never been really an important issue with us. My great-grandfather here, he was a bootlegger at one point in time. When my great-grandmother married him, he beat her. God saved him. Changed his life. My grandfather came from him. My uncle, who has, uh, who, who has the same disease that my father had, came from him. My father, when I see this, I see my father, I see, I see my mother, I see my sister, I, I see my brother-in-law. I see all the people that I know at any drop of a moment, at any drop of a hat, I could call them and they would be there for me. But I have to be honest with myself. 
Sometimes I allow my family to get in the way of what God wants me to do. Sometimes the wall and the protection that God has given me in my family, I have started uh, to worship that, to worship the blessing, to worship uh, just the goodness that God has given me in blessing me with my family. Sometimes I've allowed that to hinder me and my worship to God and my reliance upon Him. The hardest part for me going from Gallatin, Tennessee to Clear Creek was my family. I had to make the decision. Am I going to leave my parents who are getting older, my dad's health getting worse? Am I going to leave that behind? God, who's going to take care of them? Who's going to watch after them? God, what's going to happen? I had to make a decision. But I don't always make that decision right. Let me take it a step farther before, before we go into... When I see this, my family even goes into a broader scope than that. Uh, Addison and Melissa and baby Cora. When I see this picture, I think of the friends God's given me. And those that have been faithful, even in my darkest days. Those who have stood by me when nobody else would. I think of my pastor, my mentor... Brother Glenn, when I see this picture, my family comes into view. My church comes into view. But listen, if my hope's in you, if my hope's in this family, if I begin to place the blessings above the blessor, I'm going to start producing sour grapes. 